Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that these truths that we've been singing, they're not just great songs, but as we see this evening, they are in fact truths that are grounded not in opinion, but in your word. And Lord, it's as we come to your word now that I ask that you would give us wisdom to understand it, to be convicted by it, to be shaped by it, and to be changed by it. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. And grab a seat. If you've got your Bibles, you can open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And that is where we will be for the whole of the night. So we are now very deep in the thick of election season. Hopefully it'll be over soon for all of our sakes. Two weeks. Two. And I've lived through, at least as, as far as I know, about four or five elections, and I've been able to participate in about two to three elections. And in the ones that I can remember, the ones that I have to draw from as far as my experiences, I can't think of any that have been as awful as this one. Uh, it is just genuinely horrible. Uh, it's horrible because you see people, neighbors, sort of at war with each other in a way that is unbelievable. I was running in my neighborhood last night, and there is a Trump supporter on one side of the block and a Hillary supporter on the other side of the block. And with each sort of passing day, I've noticed that they're putting more signs in their front yard. Like they're trying to keep up with one another and see who can fill their yard with more signs. That's insane to me. It's like this Cold War across Comanche Avenue. Um, but you can even look at the way that the candidates have treated one another. And to me, it is far below what is acceptable for political discourse in America. They're, they're just horrendous to each other. And that's not me making a statement pro or con anyone. That's just a general observation. They're mean to each other. Uh, but... The whole, the whole back and forth smear campaign is, is something about as old as campaigning itself. And at least as old as television itself is this practice of attack ads. And if you've watched TV at all in the last month, a month and a half, you know exactly what an attack ad is. Uh, they basically take unflattering pictures of the candidate, uh, quotes that make them sound like very bad people, statistics that make them sound irresponsible and some sound bites that make them sound mean-spirited and they compile them together into this monument to how awful the candidate is. And then at the end, you might have somebody ask the question like, is this the sort of president you want with your daughters? Or is this the sort of president that you want your daughters to be led by? Or is this the sort of president that you want to represent our country to the world? And then you figure out who paid for the ad at the end. And sometimes this sort of quote mining is brought out in the context of the debate. And one candidate will say to the next, well, how do you explain what you said in this speech in regards to this issue? And they'll pull out a sentence or two. And normally when that happens, there's two responses that candidates have almost always offered, not just in this campaign, but in all of them. One, they say, I never said that, which may or may not actually be true. But more often than not, they say, well, you're taking me out of context. If you actually knew the people to whom I was speaking, or if you actually knew the issue that I was addressing, or if you actually knew what I said in the paragraph before or after in my speech, what I said there wouldn't sound nearly as bad as it sounds out of context. Now, sometimes, I would even say most times, that's not true. Most times, you put it in context, and it just gets worse. 
But there is something to be said for this idea of not ripping people's statements out of context and thinking as though you can summarize their opinions. You can't just take a sentence from an entire speech and, and say, here, we've caught the gist of what he's trying to say or what she is trying to communicate. Uh, you can't just take a chapter out of a book in somebody's entire literary output and say, this is what this author is about. It has to be contextualized. It's part of being fair. But it's infinitely more important when it comes to Scripture that we are cautious to put what we are reading and preaching and claiming in context. Uh, countless people have taken one sentence out of the Bible and made it say all sorts of things that it was never meant or intended to say. And I can just give you a point in case, very clear and easy example. If I were to say to you, the Bible says curse God and die, that's not inaccurate. That comes from the book of Job, chapter 2. But if you were to read the rest of Job chapter 2, and you were to see who said curse God and die, and you were to read the rest of the book of Job, and then in context the rest of the Bible, you would see that that statement is not presented as a bit of good advice. It's presented as bad advice from Job's wife. But if all you do is take the sentence, you can make it say anything. It's this sort of approach to scripture that has caused countless high school seniors to make Jeremiah 29:11 their college life verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you as you join Alpha Sigma Pi something or other. <laughs> and I don't even know if that's a, a fraternal sorority or anything. I just picked Greek letters that came to my mind. So if you're part of that, I'm, it's not an insult in any way. But people take that verse and they make it say something that ultimately that, that's not really what God's talking about. If you read the rest of Jeremiah 29, that's a promise to Israel. Israel is in exile, and God's promise is you will not always be in exile. I have plans for you beyond this. That same approach has turned the end of the book of Philippians into the battle cry of the baseball team that's down and out in the bottom of the ninth. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even come back and win this Super Bowl, which is the baseball game, right? No, it's not. But you take it and you rip it from context, and ultimately when you read the rest of the book of Philippians, man, what Paul is talking about is enduring suffering and hardship. He's saying, I can endure all of these things through Christ who gives me strength. So I hope if you've been a part of this ministry for any length of time, or if this is your first time and you're going to check it out the next few weeks, next few months, next few years, my hope is that you see that we are deeply passionate about taking scripture and putting it in context because we believe the whole of this book was given to us by God and we need to seek the whole counsel of God. But there are times where you are reading scripture uh, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, and you stumble upon a section of scripture that is so profound, it is so weighty, it is so obviously laced with significance that the best thing that you can do the best thing that we can do as we work through Scripture is to give due time to plumbing the depths of the riches of what is in front of us. And I think that Corinthians 5.21 is such a passage. Now, obviously, Corinthians 5.21 has a context, and we have worked through that context. We've spent about three or four weeks in this chapter. Paul's been talking about this idea of reconciliation, Within the framework of the Bible, reconciliation is where two parties that are at odds with one another are brought back together into friendship or to unity or to affection. They're not opposed to one another anymore. 
Uh, they have been reconciled. And Paul is talking about the, the, about the fact that humanity has rebelled against God, set itself against God, and he is pleading with people that they would be reconciled to God, that that war that exists between man and God would be brought to an end, that that friendship that was found before the fall would be restored. And so he ends, or he ended last week by saying, we appeal and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And in verse 21, he answers the question, how? How is it that we can be reconciled to God? How is it that we can experience this salvation? How is it that God has made things okay between us? Because it's not as as though God can just say, yeah, let's pretend like all that sin never happened because then he's not just anymore because he hasn't executed justice. So how is it that we can be reconciled to God? God remains just and our sins can receive justice. And so that is the context of Corinthians 5.21. But you'll notice in 5.21 that it sort of just strikes like lightning into the text. And even if we had no context at all, if the rest of chapter 5 were gone, it would still stand by and large on its own. And so this has led a lot of people, a lot of scholars to say that this might actually be something that Paul is quoting from an earlier source. This is an early creed or this is an early hymn that the church sang, even possibly from before when Paul knew Christ which would mean that this goes back even to the time of the apostles, that the Christians, from the minute that Jesus was raised and ascended, began to pass this on. And so they either read it together or they sang it together. Later tonight, we're gonna sing an aspect of this text together, but for now, can we read it? Would you stand with me? And I'm gonna ask you to read out loud with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It should be on the screen behind me. So read along with me. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you. So the text for the evening begins with three words. For our sake. They're important. They're absolutely vital. They are entirely central to what Paul is saying here. But... I think it's important that we figure out first what happened, and then we consider, wow, this happened for our sake. So, for a moment, could we jump three words into the passage? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, word 4. I've never divided it like that before. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So, man, if you're reading this on the screen behind me, or not, uh, or if you're reading it in the Bible in front of you or on your phone, you're going to notice in this passage, there's a lot of he's and him's. And in order to grasp the depths of this passage, because ultimately, one scholar has summarized, I think, perfectly, that in this passage, we find the very heart of the gospel. We find the heart of salvation, what it is to be saved and how it is that God has saved. If we were to grasp this, And what salvation is, you have to ask the question, who were the he's and what did they do? So, the first he is word for. He made him to be sin. Uh, Very simply, that he is God the Father. Paul has been talking about the work of God the Father throughout the whole of the chapter. That the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. Uh, And the way that I see it in, in this room... 
There's probably a, a whole lot of different sorts of people, but there's at least two categories of people in here. I would venture to say that there's a few of you in here who would not consider yourselves to be Christians. Uh, and maybe you haven't even grown up in the church, and so you have no, no framework within which to sort of interpret or understand this. And I would venture to say that uh, if you've grown up outside of the church, then you've probably heard a lot of what culture has said about what Christians believe about God. Uh, some of it's right, a lot of it's wrong. Uh, but culturally, if you were to just sort of imbibe what the world is saying about what Christians believe, you probably think that we think God is very angry, uh, that he is very wrathful, uh, that he is just waiting to drop people into the frying pan and cook them into oblivion. That he's overbearing, that he's domineering, that he is furious and ready to crush people. Now, I don't want to misrepresent God. I fully believe that God is just and that as a just God, he does in fact judge and punish. So, so don't mishear me in this. But if this passage is about salvation, I want you to look here at what it says about who took the first step in salvation. What happened for our sake? He, the Father, acts on our behalf. He makes him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Understand that salvation itself is an act of love on behalf of God. And it is God who is trying to spare sinners from the wrath of his own judgment. And so I believe God is just. And I believe God judges and punishes sin, but I believe fully with all of my heart that he is deeply loving and he demonstrates it and that he made him who knew no sin to be sin. That he takes the first steps, not us. That it's he who does the work of saving us. He does not expect us to do the work, to stack our deeds up so that we might reach him. It is he who takes that step. So the he is God the Father, but who is the him? I don't even know if that's a proper sentence. Who is the him? So we're told that he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Well, the him pretty clearly from the previous section of Scripture is Christ. The Father has made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. And from this passage, you really learn two very crucial, very central things about who Jesus is, the nature of his mission, the nature of salvation. One of the things that we see in this text is first that Christ knew no sin. Now, remember what I said earlier, that this is probably actually earlier than Paul. This is a song that the church would sing when they gathered for worship. This is a creed that they would recite together. And if it is, in fact, earlier than Paul, then it very likely goes back to the very people who walked with Jesus. It goes back to the people who knew him, who saw him minister, who spent time with him, who walked the dusty roads of the Middle East with him. And I just consider for a moment the sort of person it would take to convince you that they were, in fact, sinless, that they knew no sin. The sort of relationship that you would have to have, the sort of things a person would have to do, the sort of life that someone would have to lead that would convince you that they were in fact sinless. Because I'm just gonna be honest with you, by the time you get to the end of the Harry Potter series, not even Dumbledore is out unscathed. And Dumbledore is like the greatest father figure in literary history. So what sort of a person would you walk with? And some of these disciples walked with him for three years. They, and not just like in separate 
tents. They were sleeping around the same campfires, sharing the same meal, reaching the same crowds. What sort of a person convinces you of that? That he is utterly without sin. He knew no sin. Now, to the Christian in this room, you perhaps hear that, and there's maybe a bell that goes off, a theological bell, if you will. It's probably a good bell to go off if, in fact, it has been installed in your intellectual framework. Basically, the reality is this, that I think what Scripture teaches is not that we are sinners because we sin, but instead we sin because we are sinners. Do you, do you understand the difference here? Uh, that at the foundation of our very being is sin. And the outworking of that is that we do bad things. It's not that we are bad people because we do bad things. It's that we do bad things because we are bad people. And that starts from the moment in which we are born. And so you may hear this and go, well, maybe Jesus never did anything wrong. Maybe he never did anything bad. Maybe he never left the things undone that he should have done. But you still have to get around the fact that he was born into sin like the rest of us. And if you're asking that question, I would say, first of all, I agree with you. Every single member of Adam and Eve's crooked and fallen race, naturally born, is born wicked. But Jesus is not naturally born. There was a theologian, uh, not a theologian, I wouldn't even call him that. There was a, an evangelical speaker at one point who claimed that you could, you could get rid of the virgin birth of Jesus and not really lose anything. And for many Christians, we, we would be inclined to agree with that. What does the virgin birth really matter? Who cares? Hey, isn't, isn't it the rest of the gospels that are important? But I just want to tell you that if you jettison the virgin birth you lose everything. Because the very fact that Jesus is not born of a man, not born out of the lineage of Adam, not conceived by a husband's will, the very fact that he is knit together in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, it undoes this fundamental problem that we are born wicked. It remedies that issue. So Jesus is not only sinless because he does not sin and because he does not leave undone the things he ought to have done, he is sinless down to his very being because he is not like us in that way. We're told he is without sin. But what is shocking is the next sentence, not even sentence, the next line in this verse, that God made him to be sin though he was sinless. Now, you might read this and go, Paul's doing some doublespeak here. He's going back on what he just said. If he's sinless, how can he be sin? It's really important that you pay attention both to what Paul says and what he doesn't say. And so as I was, as I was reading, uh, pretty much all of the church fathers on this passage, all of the early Christian leaders who were within a generation or two of this being written, they all came to the same conclusion. Cyril of Alexandria sort of summarizes it. He says, we do not say that Christ became a sinner. And that is the distinction. Far from it. But by being righteous, the Father made him a victim for the sins of the world. Christ became sin. He did not become a sinner. And there is a distinction. But how is it? How does somebody become sin? Well, this analogy might help you think about it. Um, I wasn't a super outdoorsy kid, mostly because I was overweight and I couldn't run fast and do outdoorsy things. But my understanding of outdoorsy youngins uh, is that suppose you're playing outside and you've got one of those magnifying glasses 
Uh, my understanding is that if you angle that quite right under the, under the sun, you can sort of concentrate the sun's rays and you can catch things on fire. Now, one, I wasn't an outdoorsy kid, so I didn't do that. Two, I wasn't a sadist, so I wasn't the sort of person that was like nuking ants with my magnifying glass. That's one of the signs of a serial killer, cruelty to animals, just saying. Um, but, but consider that you're taking all that the sun is, perhaps not all the sun is, but you're concentrating the energy of the sun down to a fine point, and it combusts. And ultimately, I think this is what happens to Christ on the cross, that the fullness of our slander and our sickness, our darkness, our decay, our lies, our lust, they are all poured out to the very dregs on Christ, and they are punished fully on him and in him. One commentator says, the curse of God which falls upon all lawbreakers fell instead upon the accursed and crucified one so that lawbreakers can be set free. So complete was the identification of the sinless Christ with the sin of the sinner, including its guilt and the dread of its consequences, that Paul could say, God made him to be sin for us. The fullness of human evil was poured out on the sinless one. And so complete was its pouring and so complete was the judgment that came in turn, that Paul can say, he made him to be sin. I don't know, if you're a Christian, you've probably heard this passage before. But I don't know if you've rightly considered the horror of what is being said here. Because this is horrific when you truly consider that the perfect, sinless Son of God has the wrath of God against the sin of all Christians who would ever live poured out on him. That is terrifying. That is horrific. There have been times where I've watched TV shows or movies or, or documentaries, and I've seen things that unsettle me. They make me sick. And it's rare that I've come to this passage and realized that it should provoke the same response. All of my evil was poured out on Christ, and he received it willingly. I think this speaks to two things that are really, really, really important. One, it speaks to the depth of our sin. Jesus prays in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And the Father answers in resounding silence as if to say, there is no other way. And if there is no other way but this to save sinful people, how horrible our sin must actually be, no matter how lightly we take it. The second thing that I think it says is not just the horror of our sin, but the depth of Christ's love for us. There is not anybody in the world I love enough to endure this, not even my cat. The depth of Jesus' love for his people is astounding that he would endure the most horrendous of all things that have ever happened for them, for us, for our salvation. Tim Keller summarizes, I think, in a perfect way. He says, the gospel declares this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. 
So back to those three words that we skipped in the beginning. We've asked the question of what is it that happened for our salvation? We might ask the next question. For whom did this happen? Why did this happen? 21 begins with these three words. For our sake. The early church, uh, the church fathers, uh, consistently asked this question. In Latin, it's it's cur cur deus homo, which in English means why the God-man. Why is it that it had to be this way? Why is it that it happened in this fashion? Why is it that God became man? And ultimately, the answer is in these three words, for our sake. God is not under obligation to save. God is not required to save. He is perfectly just in casting all of us away. But for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And it's important to note the second of these three words. It is for our sake. In modern American evangelicalism, it's very common to talk about our personal relationship with Jesus. And that is good, and that is right, and there is nothing wrong with that. But that's not the fullness of what the gospel talks about. It's not uncommon for somebody to say, Jesus died for my sins. I think there's actually a song from the 90s um, that you can probably hear on a Christian radio station. It says something to the effect of, even if I was the only one, he would have died for me. And, I mean, that might be true hypothetically, but that's not the world that we lived in and we live in. You are not the only one. He died for us. And the union that exists between one brother in the Lord and another is more profound than any bond of blood could ever be, any socioeconomic status, any racial divide, any nationality. Because to say he died for us is to identify with one another in the deepest and the most significant and the most profound way that is possible. The Nicene Creed says, for us and for our salvation, he was made man, crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried. He died for us. The people of God are united by the shared sharing in the sacrifice of the Son of God. And the, the passage ends by saying this. I'll read it all the way through. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what theologians call the great exchange. That Jesus took our wickedness and our sinfulness and our darkness, and he gave us his righteousness and his goodness and his holiness. And this righteousness here is a legal declaration it's the sort of thing that would have been declared in a court of law, not guilty. How can God be a just judge and declare us non-guilty? Because he has punished the sin in Christ. And so he is both just and he is the justifier. There is a, a short story that was published in the 80s by a man named Walter Wangeren Jr. called The Ragman. And in this story... He describes somebody who comes to a city at the dawn of a Friday morning. And I just want to read some excerpts for you. The man comes into the city before dawn one Friday morning, and he says, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. 
He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new. He was calling in a clear tenor voice, rags. Oh, the air was foul with the first light of filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. The man continued to cry, rags, I bring new rags for old. I will take your tired rags. Come and give me your rags. And so the narrator of the story begins to follow this man as he walks through the city. And soon the rag man sees a woman sitting on her back porch. She is sobbing into her handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. And the rag man says to her, give me your rag and I will give you another. And as the narrator continues to look on at this event, he says that he began, the ragman began to pull his cart after the exchange had been made. And the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep and to sob as grievously as she had done. His shoulders were shaking. The narrator continues to follow this man through the city as he continues to cry out, new rags for old. And he comes to another girl, a girl who, whose head is wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes are empty, and the bandage is blood-soaked. The ragman takes her bandage, gives her a new head covering, and he puts the bandage on himself, and the narrator says, I gasped at what I saw, for with that bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran darker and more substantial in blood, but the blood was his own. The ragman continues on, the narrator continues to follow him, and after that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened, and sick, and the ragman took the blanket. And he continued to walk outside the city, and the narrator says, now I had to run to keep up with the ragman. He was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling with drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, and sick. Yet he went with a terrible speed out to the city dump, and it came to this. That that little old ragman came to the landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And the narrator says he waited to help him in what he did, but he hung to the back hiding. And the ragman climbed the hill, and with tormented labor, he cleared a space on that hill, and he sighed, and he laid down. The pillow under his head, the handkerchief that he had taken, from the girl who was bleeding, and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. The narrator says that at this sight, he wept, and he slept. And he awoke three days later. By violence, he saw a light pure, hard, and demanding. It slammed against his sour face. He looked, and he saw the greatest wonder of all. It was the ragman, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides all that, he was healthy. There was no sign of sorrow or age. And all the rags he had gathered shined for cleanliness. I lowered my head, trembling for all that I saw. I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him that my name was Shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. And then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with yearning, dress me. What an incredible picture of 2 Corinthians 5. Perhaps the best way to end our time in this text is with the words of the prophet Isaiah that he spoke several hundred years before the death of Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, afflicted by God. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. We're gonna sing these words together in a song that you may or may not be familiar with, but I ask that you would ponder these words and sing them nonetheless. But first, would you stand with me and let's pray together. Father, we do not deserve the great price that was paid for us and for our salvation, but you have given it to us lavishly because of your great love. And Christ, we thank you that you were obedient that you lived a sinless life and you died a substitutionary atoning death, standing in our place condemned, though it was we who deserved it. And we thank you that you have taken our rags and given us your righteousness. And God, for those who have not experienced that great exchange, for those who have not placed their faith in the work of the cross, Lord, I pray that the Spirit would stir and convict. For, for those of us who have experience that exchange. Lord, may we never take it for granted. May we always walk in wonder and in astonishment at the depths of the riches of the gospel. We ask all these things in Christ's name.